Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and I am joined by Mike Isratel. Um, of course, all of you guys already know Mike, and we are having kind of a bit of a special episode, although every episode with Mike is, of course, special. And this one is to help promote uh, the seminar with Gabrielle Fondero, Mike Isratel, obviously all the guys from Renaissance Periodization, James Hoffman, uh, who are coming over and presenting on the 11th and 12th of May. We still have a few number of VIP tickets that probably have been sold out by the time this comes out. Hopefully they have been. Um, and then we have obviously some general sale tickets as well. So it'd be amazing to see you there. And Mike is going to be incredibly shredded and diced uh, as we were just talking about how his cut is going and everyone's been commenting. And it's definitely the leanest I think anyone has ever seen you, Mike. So uh, you're doing a great job. Thanks. When's this coming out? This will probably come out in, I think we have, Gabrielle's just come out. So we have James coming out this weekend so you'll come out like a week this saturday okay cool yeah yeah well so. I'll start to really look interesting by then so um i have been intentionally not posting pictures much um and the ones i've posted are me not looking so incredible because a lot of the stuff we're doing right now uh in the diet is results in a lot of water being held under the skin so uh, but that being said, when the water comes off, uh, even already with the water still on, some really interesting stuff is happening with my body. So I'm uh, right now the leanest I've ever been, and I have another, well, if you count this as half a week, I have another two and a half weeks of dieting um, hypocalorically. And then I do a week of like like a mock peak, like load carbs. And then uh, take some pictures to see how the whole process ends up going. Um, so there's like potential for really cool stuff to happen. Um, I've got some pictures already that are kind of just really nonsensical um, that I'll be posting eventually. But hopefully those will not be so cool once the real pictures get taken when I'm all dialed up. It, it's really interesting though because right now um, I'm like flat as a pancake. Um, super flat because I'm eating very little food for my activity level and um, I'm watery and I look better every week but a flat and watery better is still kind of like it's a, it's a bit of a mind fuck because yeah. you're like man you know this isn't uh, this isn't great it, it's interesting uh, Shelby Starnes who's an amazing bodybuilding coach said something a long time ago where he said you know when you're looking flat you don't like to look flat you don't look great flat, but it's those times when you flatten out that you're burning the most body fat. And then if you try to stay full all the time or every time you get flat, you go, oh, my God, I need more carbs. You go back to full. That cyclical approach sure works, but it takes, it takes a while. Um, uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, if you never want to be flat, you're just never going to get as lean as you could or you'll just never get lean. I mean if you ever want to be your most full – you're just not going to do that. So there's this really interesting trade-off in in uh, most sports, but uh, you know, especially in, in bodybuilding. In this case, like when you're having the most amazing workouts, when you're looking your absolute best, um, you're probably doing a bit more of showing off versus than you are of making progress. And there has to be a balance there, mostly in favor of making progress. 
every now and again, you got to sort of show off to see where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, every now and again, deloads and, and cyclical carb alterations can accomplish that rather well. But it's important not to get bogged down into being like, oh man, like I looked so shitty on low carbs. Like, mm-hmm. and how was your weight loss progress? Well, I lose, I lost like a pound and a half a week. And it's like, well, you just keep doing that. And if your rep strength hasn't decreased, you're probably just burning a lot of fat. And like, yeah, but I look like shit. Like, yeah, you look like shit now. Um, the thing is, uh, this isn't my first rodeo of doing a cut and a pretty hard cut at that. And I fucked up many hard cuts with you know, the sort of the wrong approach to sports supplements, et cetera. But the underlying processes I've gotten very used to. And the one thing I've learned is um, this panic to try to look good right then and there is a big fucking waste of time. And you got to commit to the process, know that you're not going to look your best, do what it takes. And then at the end of the day, when you make the changes you need to, in, in the case of naturals, just eat more carbs and maybe reduce your training volume a little bit. Within two or three days, you're going to be like, oh my God, I've got all these crazy details and veins and fullness and holy shit, I want to always look like this. Well, that's the nature of progress and process is that you don't always look like that. Um, a chef's table when he's making delicious food looks like total shit. There's crap everywhere. Only at the end does it look amazing. But if you say, well, can it always look like this and make food? Well, that's not magic, right? Uh, and much the same thing is exactly the same thing can be said about preparing for strength sports. You know, like when you're in accumulation phase in powerlifting, sets of like four to six reps are grinders and you're like, man, I should not be grinding with this, but it's your fourth week of accumulation. You're very fatigued. When the fatigue comes off, you'll be way stronger. And you could say, well, why don't we just bring the fatigue off all the time? Well, how the hell are you supposed to accumulate any kind of volume load if you're always trying to drive the fatigue down? This perma-peaking is just basically showing off and thinking that's training versus training and waiting until the right time to show off. So that's been... I wouldn't say a new lesson for me in this um, this diet, but I would say it's it's as ever been reiterated to me. Um, and a huge, huge props to Broderick Chavez, um, Team Needle GSP, and Jared Feather, of course, who have been guiding me along. Uh, but Broderick especially um, has said, you know, he he loves the the long and slow approach and not rushing diet. I've rushed a bunch of diets, and it never works well. Um, a real diet to get super lean is not a mini cut. And this is something you and I, Steve, have talked about a lot. Yeah. Remember when like all the mini cut stuff hit like your videos and then the book and people are like, so when do I mini cut? And we're like, are you intentionally massing to get as big as possible? They're like, no, but like the never, the answer is never. <laughs> and they're like, but I want a mini cut. Like, yeah, you want mini results that set you up for a rebound. They're like, no, like, well, that's what a mini cut is. So, um, it's really cool to see a process that takes a longer time, slowly unfold patience is the key. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm at a loss to say of where motivation should come from if you're not looking better and better every few days. Cause a lot of times, like that's what keeps us going on a cut is like every few yeah. days you like look a little bit, a little vein, another situation when you're accumulating high volumes of training, your stress response causes you to store more and more water each week subcutaneously. And a lot of times that can mean like for literally for, for naturals for at least two weeks, for people with sports supplements for months, arguably, you could just not look magically different week to week. Um, and, and then once you make the changes, you can all of a sudden transform and ascend to the next level, so to speak. So the question becomes, how do you stay motivated day to day? What I found has been very effective for me once I say this, people are going to be like, no surprise, Mike, you fucking asshole, you talk about the shit all the time, is 
you use other previous cuts and previous data about yourself and you create systems within which to operate. You understand that those systems must be effective by the laws of thermodynamics, and I'll get to that in a second. And you simply put your trust, not faith, faith is a belief without reason, trust, because you know it should work, into running the system. And what motivates you is how much of a machine can I be and run the system essentially blind? Because when you run the system for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and then you have some changes where you eat more carbs and your body water drops or something, your training stress reduces, you have this whoosh effect where you're like, oh my God, what have I created? This is crazy. I look unbelievable. And then you go, aha, the system really is valuable. What do I mean by trusting the system? So, um, and this is uh, some, I've had some very interesting talks recently with Eric Helms uh, to this regard. So, you know, uh, NEAT can change by a considerable uh, amount and metabolism can, can change by a considerable amount, um, you know, week, uh, month to month when you're cutting. But there are limits to how much those things change, right? You're not going to be eating – I'm not going to be eating 1,000 calories a day and not losing tissue, right? Mm -hmm. I have on previous cuts eaten 1,000 calories a day for two weeks and not lost weight. I actually have done that because the body water response is just unbelievable. So – you know that your metabolic adaptation only goes so far and you know your NEAT adaptation only goes so far and uh, especially if you're very physically active anyway, you kind of have the same daily schedule. Like Jared Feather and I still walk. We walk 50 minutes to our gym. It's across the city actually. Um, I walk to the same places every day. I still do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like there's only so many places where I can lose NEAT. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it, it's just – I'm not changing. I'm not like sitting at home and watching TV the whole day where I used to have all these hobbies and have a dog. I ate the dog, you know? <laughs> um, so that's a bit morbid, huh? So, uh, <laughs> you know, how to cut, you look at the dog and like, legs look pretty thick. So basically at the beginning of the diet, especially when the amount of sports supplements was lower and more predictable, I was losing, I was eating roughly uh, well, the proteins and fats really don't change, so we'll just speak in carbs because they're proteins and fats stay roughly the same for me. I was eating roughly 400 grams of carbs per day. And I was losing in tissue because my body water was stable this entire time for about five weeks. I was losing two to two and a half pounds per week in tissue at 400 grams of carbs per day. Uh, later in the diet, more recently, I've introduced some elements that make my body water essentially just uh, put a smoke screen, like an iron curtain, <laughs> so to speak, behind anything my weight can ever tell me. So to put this in perspective for you guys, uh, roughly two weeks ago, I uh, was 221 pounds, and then the next day I was like 220.2 or something. This morning, I was uh, – yesterday, I was 220.2. And this morning I was 119.6 and I had – and I had been 219.2 like seven days ago. Make some fucking sense out of that. I mean I mean, literally have just – like if I was looking at it as a scientist, I'd be like this person has – there's by no means clear they've lost any tissue. Like there's just no – there's or lost any weight rather. So that's how, that's how deep into the water holding territory we really are. But what do I know? I know my meat hasn't changed much because my physical activity is very high. Uh, in addition to that, I know that the sports supplements – have a very large flux or throughput where uh, they're working underneath all, everything to essentially build muscle and burn fat more or less at the same time. Like they work, right? There is, so 
it's not something like, oh, is it working? Like, for sure it's working. You're not seeing it working. It's fucking working. And then what else do I know? I'm consuming currently my average for the uh, week, uh, you know, it's day to day. Sometimes it's a little less, sometimes a little more, is 300 grams of carbs. And if you're keeping track at home, that is a 400 calorie deficit from a, a, an amount of food that was netting me a kilogram loss per week. Am I losing, am I hypocaloric, taking into account the fact that I haven't lost any weight in two weeks? Of course I'm fucking hypocaloric. Fuck. I mean, this is corroborated by the fact that every night I dream about eating yeah. sugary and fatty food. <laughs> Your body doesn't just dream that unless you're hypocaloric, like literally. But um, never mind the fact that my body's visually changing, so it's pretty clear. But you know, that could be body water too, right? It could be filling out or something like that. But the thing is, is like, when I was in the earlier phase of the diet and things were stable, and I only weighed like 230-ish back then, so it's only 10 pounds more body weight. So it's not like I lost 40 pounds and now my, my uh, basal metabolic rate is completely different. It's really not. Um, when I set my parameters and established my systems down to eating very similar foods every day, at 400 carbs, I was losing an, uh, like basically a percent of body weight per week. Now that I'm at 300 grams of carbs – Let's say all of that difference is swallowed up by adaptation. It's not, by the way. Let's say it is. Then I'm only losing a fucking percent of body weight per week. And, and, and what does that mean? You know, uh, some of that, you know, how much of that is, is muscle versus fat? Probably all fat. <laughs> uh, you know, with, with, this kind of, with this kind of game we're running here. So it's one of those situations where it's like, okay, so – do I have to have faith that the protocol is working? No, I just have to have this most reasonable understanding of what the baseline systems were, their modification to make them even more aggressive, and the imposition of those systems on current situations, which outside of just freaky thermodynamic shit, they just have to work. So it's – and this is uh, – you know, don't worry. This is not all just for, pro, for, for contest bodybuilders. There is something uh, to be gotten here wisdom-wise, I think, a little bit for folks just dieting. When you're hitting your macros and you know your macros are macros that, that are like well into – like put, 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 put this way. If you're losing like 0.2 kilos a week, 0.1 kilo a week, and you have some times when you're not losing weight and you've been like traveling or your, your water is weird, I can't tell you that you're losing tissue. Your meat might have adjusted fully. You might have eaten a bit of extra calories on travel and miscalculated foods. No. If you're losing a, a kilo a week or 0.7 kilos a week from a certain system with given macros and you have some travel, some stress, some this, some that, where all you do is hit your macros on your workouts and everything else is in flux and your body weight does weird shit, trust and believe you are still on track because when you know that you have a, such a big – like big is an interesting word – such a robust deficit generated – okay, at worst, you're only going to lose half a kilo a week for these couple weeks. That's still great fucking progress. So I think a lot of times we get in the situation where we're like, we think our body is this perfect machine that has no body water flux, no hormonal flux. And we're like, oh, for the last three days, I haven't lost any weight. That means my metabolism over the last three days, mind you, and like last week, I lost a kilo and a half. 
last three days, I didn't lose any weight. That means in the last three days, my NEAT has plummeted to zero, right? My metabolism is shut down to fucking starvation mode. And all of a sudden, like, I, you know, give me a couple days, I'll be gaining. Give me a couple more days, I'll be on my 600-pound life trying to talk about how I got fat initially. And now I weigh 300 kilos and I'm going to die really soon. So it's one of those situations where the, the body water flux thing is real and it's real for everyone. And how do you know that you're beating the flux by sticking to your macros and your physical activity generally and just weathering the storm. And then you'll be surprised to learn that after two weeks of the crazy travel or stress or work, you start to settle back into your normal food, still the same macros. And like that week, you lose like a kilo and a half. And you're like, oh my God, holy shit. And then you look unbelievable. And it's like, wow, okay. Like, why was I ever freaking out? And the answer is you should have never been freaking out. So I don't want to make this I don't the super big fan of the the, the line uh, trust the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a fine thing to say, but it's one of those things. It's like the next question becomes why trust the process, and the next answer becomes a uh, an empirically empirically in the sense that you actually validated on your own body an empirically ecologically validated system applied to your current situation. It's gonna fucking work. It's going to fucking work 99 times out of 100 and all the stress and freaking out in the world and doubting yourself is going to make things no better whatsoever. Before I knew this, especially with the sports supplement water flux, what I would do is begin to introduce various sports supplements into my protocol, which I had no idea because I was working alone, didn't trust anybody, that they added body water like the world was coming to an end. And I just didn't know that. And I thought it was if my, if my weight is not going down. Clearly, I'm hypercaloric. So then I would respond by cutting calories into the bone. Like I said, in my first ever bodybuilding show prep, which was a fucking disaster, because I probably carried like, I don't know, it's hard, probably seven kilos of body water onto the stage that I shouldn't have. (laughs) Um, That first prep, I, for the last month, I was eating uh, 1,000 to 1,200 calories per day. Um, weighing roughly 100 kilograms, right? So uh, my neat was to the point where I had um, I could train barely. I could do my work at school, finish my PhD, and um, I could go home and watch movies and cartoons, basically like sitting or laying in bed, and go to sleep. And, and that was it. Walking to work was hard. Just 20 yeah. minute walk. Breathing was hard. My heart, my resting heart, it was like 38 or something. Else. It was like I was laying in bed. And it was like, like I'm all, oh, I thought I died between those two beats, you know, which may have happened. So it was, it was one of those things. But even when I cut that hard, I was losing like half a pound a week at that point, a pound. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, how? How is this possible? A part of it was that I drove my meat so low that some of that was actually meat reduction. But the reason I drove my meat so low is because I cut my calories way lower than I ever fucking had to. Um, and then it was a, sort of a compounding problem. But the real answer was I just didn't know about water flux and I didn't know about stress and I didn't know about any of that. And at that point, I had my sleep started going to hell. And that's another thing people do. And this is another public service announcement. Your sleep, in order for you to lose body fat remotely optimally, has to be good. It, it doesn't have to be great, but it has to be good. If you're cutting so many calories that your sleep is starting to be significantly affected in duration or quality, um, you're cutting on too few calories. There's, there's no way I can say this. 
And if you say, yeah, but when you're grinding it close to a show, bullshit, because then you just accumulate a ton of stress-related body water, and then you start losing muscle and or just stop losing body fat, and then everything really goes to hell. We make an argument that the last six weeks before a show is when you need the most sleep. So um, where is this all going? Uh, if you want to get in shape super fast, there is a speed with which you cannot do so because it requires cutting calories that much that you run into all those problems, body water, stress, lack of sleep. There is a certain amount of rushing you cannot do to get lean. And what is the answer to the, 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 that question? There's two answers fundamentally. One is start your prep earlier or your cutting phase earlier, and uh, which has its downsides and upsides because then you have to diet for longer, which mm -hmm. is like not the greatest thing in the world. Um, and or my pay personal favorite, which I didn't do myself this time and when I do it for next prep because I'm going to do uh, – almost certainly going to do a show next November, start dieting leaner. <laughs> and, and people could say like – well, like that's not really much of an answer. That's like saying like, how do you get rich? Make money, right? Like, don't we have to diet to get leaner? Mm, that's a different diet, right? And like you and I have talked about before, Steve, like, there's a huge thing to say for the two diet approach, and for yep. some people, the ten diet approach, depending on how, how far you out. Um, there's the diet, and it's it's funny because uh, myself and Jared and the 3DMJ guys end up doing almost the same thing. We just call yep. it different things, and then people think we have beef. Um, they say their contest diet is 24 weeks long, but they're really splitting it up into two diets more or less on, on paper is the diet that gets you lean and the diet that gets you ready for the stage. Um, we do the same thing and we recommend the same thing. We just distinctly call it two diets. And when people say like, well, I heard the 3MJ guys diet for 24 weeks, like, yeah, but the cumulative number of diet breaks and refeeds adds up to our maintenance phase that we squash in between our two diets. So it's really like very similar. But what I would say is, you know, people who are dieting, you know, let's say you're like 15, 12, 12 or 13 to 15% fat, like just get an outline of abs, looking pretty good, a couple bicep veins, and you want to get like show lean or just freaky lean, that's not one diet away, that's two diets away. So the first diet is actually just not that hard. You go down from your current, you know, 13 to 15% fat and get to something like 9 to 10% fat, which as far as visual appearance is like you look crispy clean. You look lean. Like people are like, wow, you look great. Um, a good reference frame is some, right around March 25th, 26th. If you guys look back at my Instagram and Facebook, those pictures I took in Finland, that's what I would call sort of that area of body fat. Like veins, I can do a really badass vacuum pose, like suck my gut in a ton. Um, every muscle is sort of visually on its own separated, um, yeah. separations. There's no striations, yeah. right? But there's separations, very clear abs, so on and so forth. And, uh, and then, so that's like what that looks like. You get there and ideally you spend in, in our approach at RP, probably about two months there, right? Some good volume training, good volume eating. So you so basically slowly eat more food, but don't let your body weight uh, creep up. So your meat goes back up everything. And remember that body weight for males, I'm talking about males in, in this case, females bump it up five to 7% for all this discussion. Um, you know, nine to 10%, that's actually sustainable body fat. So after two months of training and eating, you're going to be back to like pretty decent numbers of carbs and you're not going to be super crazy and you're going to have a ton of momentum and you're going to look great. You might have even built a bit of muscle during that maintenance phase. Um, and then then you begin a contest diet, so to speak. And at that point, if you're really 9 to 10%, that diet's only 12 weeks long. 
And, you know, the first four weeks gets you in very good shape. The next four weeks gets you in pretty much contest shape if you had to be there. And then the last, uh, mm, excuse me, Casey and pudding, yummy. All the fiber. <laughs> yeah, it's, for sure. Well, uh, the meal I posted before I got on this interview was hilarious. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, casein and pudding is one of those things that kind of diet. I'm like, this is so great. I could eat a bunch of it. So, like two weeks after massing starts, I'm like, get that away. Like, I don't want to <laughs> smell it. I don't want to see it. Like, I saw someone eating casein pudding once when I was at the peak of mass. I was like, I'm to throw up. That looks like you're eating shit. <laughs> it's just so thick and it yeah. coats your throat. And you're like, oh my God, how did you eat this? Um, so, the first, you know, first, first four weeks of that last 12-week diet is to get you uh, like lean, lean. The second four weeks is to get you basically in show shape and then – or like, you know, whatever, like super, super lean. And then the last four weeks – and this is something that the 3DMJ guys have been doing for a long time and I think they're spot on with this – is for tweaking, right? And specifically, it's this trade-off between basically eating sort of at maintenance, probably I would say on average half of the week you eat at maintenance – which means you get like oh, unbelievable pumps and you, this is you look, this is the picture time, right? Where you like every workout, you're like, ah, look at me, like being lean and full at the same time. It's nuts. And the other average half of the week, you're in like a pretty decent deficit. And how do you decide which one is which? Well, the first thing you do after you end your last, so your middle four weeks, after you end that, the first thing you do is basically go refeed, so to speak, but you go just back to maintenance carbs, which could be like, you know, like if you're dieting on 200 carbs, it could be like 300 or 350. What you're going to do is once you fill out by the middle of that week, you're going to be looking like how you would look on stage more or less, right? And this is, this is for naturals, but it's just slightly modified for people who use. Um, and then you're going to be like, okay, like, so there's two options to go from there. One is like, and this is funny, Eric and I had this conversation and him, he's like, you know, once guys get like cross striations in their glutes and their lower backs are paper dry, he's like, in my experience, trying to push that further just causes muscle loss and fatigue and there's just nothing happens. You're just smaller. So stop. So if you happen to fill out and you're looking rika leaky, then my personal advice would be take the next five to uh, take the, this, this, this week, continue on. And for five to six days of the week, maintenance. And then for one to two days, go into a deficit. Because we may still be a little, little bit sharper. Also, psychologically, it's very hard to convince bodybuilders when they're four weeks out and looking amazing. Like, we're not going to push it at all anymore. Like, mm, you might want to push it a little bit. The good news is, is with that uh, maintenance to dieting ratio, your hormonal recovery starts getting really amazing. Your uh, psychology of food starts to get really amazing. The amount of body water you're holding from stress starts to get really amazing. And after weeks of that, you're like really like just you can coast right into a show and fuck shit up. The other option is you uh, fill out for the first time in that fourth week out and like you look great, but you're like, mm, mm, realistically, maybe you've been leaner before or maybe it's time for you to maybe you've been that lean before, but you know there's extra there. There has to be. You're comfortable pushing it. And fundamentally, you don't feel so fucked up and over-dieted that you're like, oh, no, there's no way I can push. Because right? if you feel like that, man, it might just be good to just coast, right? If the if you're sort of feeling like, mm, we can get another kilo or two of body fat off me over the next four weeks, then half the week, like three or four days is spent in the deficit, and then three or four days of every week is spent in a maintenance. So that every three or so basically the first week you do maintenance, deficit. The next week when you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in maintenance – at like Thursday morning, you're going to look 
uh, your other best, right? Your next week's best. And then you're gonna be like, wow. And then you make another call, same algorithm. You're like, okay, do we push it further or do we sort of coast? And then you repeat that three more times until peak week. And like, you know, that could be serious. Like that's what, you know, four days times three, that's 12 days at a rough deficit. Gee, you know, that's a percent body fat right there that you could move. And look, when you move a percent body fat from six to 5%, there's your new striations right there. The other option, I would say the third major option, and it's all a spectrum in between, is you do that first carb up uh, and you're like, I am behind, right? Like I'm not as lean as I want to be. And then you essentially do like one to two days of maintenance per week for the next coming weeks. And, you know, six to uh, five to six days of hypocaloric dieting. Not the greatest thing in the world because you're still going to hold a bit more body water in that last week of peaking. You still have to go back to maintenance eating, I think, drop the body water, fill out, so on and so forth. But at least for the next sort of two to four weeks, depending on when you do this, you're going to be able to move the needle a bit, maybe 2% more on body fat. And then that can get you in the show shape you need. So that's the the really cool thing about that last month basically of dieting is it's a calibration month, which is why when people say you want to be show lean four weeks out, some people will be like, well, that's stupid. Why, why don't you just land the plane instead of like going close to the runway and sc scooting over it? Well, basically, the, the stupidest analogy I can come up with a spot right now is you need to get low enough for air traffic control to put you in a stack, right? They, they need to tell you where to go. And if, if you're like flying like 800 kilometers away from the airport, they're not even, you're not even on their radar. They're like, yeah, that flight comes in in like three hours. We don't care. Like we've got other flights coming in and we can reroute them a bit. So you need to be able to have that opportunity to level your physique out several weeks out before a show or before your end of your cut and make the, those algorithmic three-tiered decisions. Am I mostly coasting? Am I 50-50 or am I mostly pushing? And I think that is – um, uh, kind of a, a really, really cool tool to use when you're getting uh, super lean. And in actually, interestingly, in that last phase, do you think the going to the days at maintenance is important to try and rid that body water or would be going, say, you oh, just yeah. average out those calories and be in a lesser of a deficit for the entire week? Would that not quite work as well? Um, I think there is a special thing about multiple days in uh, maintenance that relaxes you literally recovers you and de-stresses you more than a split the difference. Let's talk about the concept of splitting the difference versus the concept of staggering theoretically, and then we'll zoom back in. So if we zoom out, we look at a bodybuilder at the end of their contest, and then we scoot forward an entire calendar year to the next contest the next year. If you had to look at their average calories, average surplus, et cetera, because let's say they show up two or three kilos heavier at their next show next year, what you're really saying is they're running a surplus of 25 calories on the net balance for that year per day. Okay. Who the fuck is going to program that? Can you imagine that? Like you stay at 4% body fat and you just add 25 calories and you slowly put – but that's just not how it works at all. Because you're in the danger zone. You're in that, that zone of which is just like muscle loss and hormones don't work, et cetera. So someone could say like over the course of a week, isn't it better to average out everything and just sort of just – yeah, for the first months of your diet, that's how dieting works. Totally. I'm not saying like you're 18 weeks out. You should be doing high, low, high, low, high, low. That is like something I've had a problem with when 
people who were like regular people are like, what do you think of carb cycling? I'm like, not much, man. Like the RP diet templates don't do that. The RP diet app doesn't do that. It's for good reason. It's not designed for competitors. That's what Jared Feather, that's why we have him as coach's competitor. So, um, you know, when you look at it like this, if you split the difference, you get neither the reloading and recovery of the maintenance, nor do you get as aggressive of a fat loss per any day. But if you don't split the difference and if you do this tiered system where you have half the week of maintenance, half the week at a deficit, the deficit days really do fucking meat and potatoes really burn fat for sure. And the maintenance days really give you that break. It's almost – as exact analogy is a work week. Would you rather work you know, uh, the normal work day five days a week and get two weekends off or two days off for the weekend or would you rather work a bit less but work every day? There is actually only one correct answer to that for the population at large. It is the work week with a weekend because that's how fatigue works. Fatigue sums up and then it needs to be reduced. Sums up, it needs to be reduced. Just spreading it out just puts it in that bad zone of it's sort of there and it's sort of always climbing and it never quite falls. So I think it's, it's, it is very important to realize that, yes, those several days at maintenance are part of the magic, are part of the effective strategy. Just averaging them out works beautifully early in the prep. Later in the prep, you need them in order to bring down this massive fatigue every time it gets too high, and you need them to assess progress. Because the thing is, if you split the difference and just go, you know, instead of going 400, 400 grams of carbs on the maintenance and 300 on the diet, if you split the difference, just do 350 every day, people are going to be like, what are you looking like? You're like, I think I'm looking better every week. I'm looking good for sure. I can't quite tell what I'm going to look like if I'm filled out. Well, we'll fill out. But that requires me eating 400 calories. I can't lose weight like that. Well, then fill out half the week and diet the other half. And they're like, well, I don't know. And it's like, it's pretty obvious. So, uh, so I think it works from all of those perspectives, which I think it is slightly superior to a linear calorie reduction in the last month. In the first couple of months of dieting, just to lose fat, who gives a shit? And as a matter of fact, for, and this is one of those interesting things people talk about all the time, and I think they're right to talk about. There's a huge delineation, huge difference between diets designed for regular people and diets designed for competitors. For regular people, one of the worst possible things you can do is introduce a heterogeneity of schedules to confuse the living fuck out of them. But here, check this out, regular person. Here's like three rules to live by, three rules to organize your meals. Here's your macros. Basically, like for this kind of day, you eat this, this kind of day, you eat that. There's no carb cycling, no refeeds, no cranking up, no dialing in. Because that shit confuses the fuck out of them. Just the same shit over and over for months causes really robust fat loss and has a huge benefit of being a stable schedule because it's the idea of a schedule that shocks them at that point. And the more stable the schedule, be like, look, you got the following responsibilities. Just do these. That's easy. But having all these minute cyclical bullshits that basically don't do a goddamn thing at their level anyway – is a net negative for individuals like that. So it's important to understand that perspective there. Uh, another quick uh, sort of bit of insight on that, people ask us at RP what we think of diet breaks. Um, we think that like, you know, like refeeds, like week-long refeeds or a couple days here and there, uh, we think they're very interesting tools to use at particular times, like, like I've just described, for competitors. Motherfucker, you have never done a diet before. You do a diet for 12 weeks. You don't get diet breaks. You don't need diet break. Diet break for your whole life's been a diet break. You can crank a 12-week diet, no problem with no break. Guess what the break is? After your 12-week diet. 
People talk about like, oh, I need a refeed or like a cheat meal. I need a cheat day. You've had a cheat life, motherfucker. You don't need that shit. You just need to just have this similar food, similar schedule, hypocaloric diet, day in, day out, so you can get used to it and honestly look at yourself in the mirror and be like, this is the shit. I remember before I threw in the extra sports supplements recently, it's about five or six weeks of dieting I did January and February. I had my shit dialed in so well with the same shit, same training, same foods. Weight loss was like to the fucking tenth of a pound every same, every week the same. I was like, you know, I, I was doing cardio one time at the gym and I was, I had my music in and I was doing it faster than I even should have because I was so fucking motivated. And I thought to myself, I could just keep dieting like this forever. Like I'm not hungry. I'm not tired. I'm not wigging out. Now those things are not as true, mostly because of the extra special sports supplements and they fuck with your brain. But it, it was just one of these things where I was like, this level of consistency once you've got it down and it's habit is so easy to pull off. It's like breathing. That's where we need to get regular people. That's where your clients need to go. When you get to prep, that's where everyone needs to start in prep. And then eventually you make things more complicated as needed. Sure as hell not needed to get people to 10% for uh, males or you know 12% for males, 17% for females. Linear caloric restriction normal diets can get people there no fucking problem at all yeah no nice it's interesting to hear the last month in particular with the refeeds and everything i in my own experience what you kind of described there was almost what i ended up doing in 2017 apart from i ended up qualifying for finals which i didn't expect and hadn't planned for mm -hmm. and then i ended up doing what would be kind of it was kind of like a reverse diet but also almost just basically maintenance up until those shows and then i just added extra carbs in my peak week and that's basically what ended up happening totally once you're the thing is once you're already show lean and you were the extra days of dieting just hurt you so then between those two shows or three shows you basically just eat at maintenance and just keep it clean, so to speak. And then you're fucking golden. And then like, if you notice your physique is like hey, a little bit, a little bit watery or a little bit extra fat after a couple weeks, like let's say you have a month between shows. What I would say is you can do two weeks of maintenance eating. And at the end of that two weeks, cause you're full anyway, you assess how you look. And if you look great, keep going. But if you look like you're like, ah, I could push it a little more for this show. Take the next week, uh, as a week in which you mostly cut and the next week after which you mostly cut and then refeed and you'll look your all-time best what i wouldn't do is like after the first show if you were dialed in do the next week cut next week cut because then you're doing the process basically in reverse you're giving yourself no breathing room after a show nice and actually just to clarify because i think people will be really interested um and this podcast has not really turned into the q a we expected but i think this is going to be super interesting uh because there were a lot of questions asking about kind of how's your prep gone and asking sure, sure, kind of sure. questions about this in terms of obviously you talked about diet breaks or like quite often i think you guys have recommended during that deload week potentially you bring calories to maintenance so you get fuller recovery and you kind of talked about diets getting you down to the 12 percent or like lower 10% for males and then mm -hmm. females can add kind of 10% above that potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you not take diet breaks during like a potentially it was like a 15 week cut down from 15 to 10%? Would there be no diet breaks in that or would you guys, or would you feel like you could have some in that? A 15 week diet from 15% to 
at face value to me too long sounds <laughs> like you're taking your sweet fucking time <laughs> for no fucking reason um now maybe you need that much time but then i think the die breaks are auto programmed with deloads like we say so on a deload week let's say you run a four to one paradigm so that's three four to one paradigms you do a deficit on the four accumulation weeks and on the deload you do maintenance a lot of times it means you just eat the same food anyway but because the deload is so much less training that the calories made up for it and it's basically maintenance or you could have just a bit more food to recover i think that's a really really swell approach okay I, I don't think you should be dieting through deloads. Um, hypocaloric condition during a deload, with very few exceptions, is a terrible idea. Cool. Yeah, that's all I wanted to clarify because I think that's what it maybe it sounded like you were saying, but I know we'd said differently beforehand. So yeah, for sure. I, the kind of deload diet break approach, I've, just it works wonders for so many people that I totally been totally. With but it's it's one of those things where it's a function of the training. It's not superimposed onto it. Uh, people will just be in normal training and be like, when do I get a diet break? It's like, you don't. And like, what do I do during deload week? Well, you eat the same amount of food, but you train less. So it turns into a diet break. And they're like, but it doesn't feel like a diet break. Like, yeah, cause you can't go order fucking pepperoni pizza. And they're like, yeah, like, well, that's not that kind of diet break. That kind of diet break happens after your show or after your cut ends and you ease into that stuff. It's not something you do. Uh, Broderick, uh, and I had a conversation where, this is a bit, a little outside the scope of this particular um, conversation, but basically we were deciding whether or not I'm going to just try to hit 300 grams of carbs every day or whether or not based on hunger levels and energy and activity. Because sometimes I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, sometimes I don't. Um, like some days, some days I train three to four times a day if you include Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and cardio. Uh, sometimes I, I train only once um, and sometimes twice, sometimes three times. So we were saying like, you know, Basically, it's 350 carbs some days and anywhere between you know, 250 carbs and 350 carbs on some days. Um, if you need to scope to that level of granularity, uh, that's totally fine. Um, but that 350 grams of carbs, he goes, look, that's totally cool. And I, th I think that's better. He goes, just as long as you know you're still on a diet and, and you're not just freewheeling. Right. So it's not like I have my low days where I'm on a diet and I have my high days where I'm in New York City eating fucking cheesesteaks or something. <laughs> By the way, my wife and I and Gabrielle Fandaro and Jared Feather and his girlfriend had an opportunity to go see Brad Schoenfeld in person in upstate New York. We met his bulldog who's adorable and uh, we went to go to a diner, a local upstate New York diner, um, which they kind of known for diners in that area and it's not disappoint. Um, I ordered a – an egg white omelet with like corned beef, something intentionally not good tasting because I would never eat corned beef outside of a diet. It's fucking disgusting. Um, and some veggies and a shitload of sparkling waters. And then um, Gabby and Crystal both shared and swapped desserts like cheesecake. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to die here. It was terrible. Jared and I were both dieting. And we were just like, this is so tough because Jared and I could make a diner like disappear yeah. uh, in the off season. So it was just one of those situations where like, yeah, that was like his Broderick's like words are ringing in my head. Like you're still on a diet. Funny enough, those days in New York when I went to the seminar and this is okay. This is another maybe interesting thing. Um, somebody could get some use out of this insight. I almost never travel on a really hard cuts because it's a fucking stupid idea. You can plan your travel to not do that. But if you have to, 
What I actually do when I travel, I end up doing this and it works every time. I go harder into the diet when I'm traveling. I eat less carbs. I go stricter. I use more anti-hunger strategies so that because I'm not exactly sure what's in my food and because restaurants don't make food exactly like you want because there's always a little bit of oil on the grill, et cetera, et cetera, and because maybe my physical activity is not going to be as high because I'm like, you know, sitting in a hotel versus doing my regular stuff. And for the 50 other million reasons, I want to make sure that my diet, if anything, makes up for those other things. So like my little, uh, I had to do a, a stronger expert seminar in New York City this last weekend, two or three of some of the toughest days of my entire life, because I was at sub 2,500 calories per day and all of those. Like I would start the seminar by doing this. Uh, where the fuck are we? Like, I'd be like, where are I? I have no idea where I am. Uh, we trained that entire time and we ate very little fucking food. I came back, went back to the normal protocol. And then two or three days later, my physique was like transformed. And it was like, whoa, holy shit. Like I really did put in the work versus going on a trip, trying to stick to your normal macros or even being like, I'm on a trip, try to enjoy life. You're, you're not going to enjoy life unless you're free to really eat some shit. So you're like on this longer leash, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's your leash you're holding, so tighten it up is my opinion. So if you're going to a place on a diet and you have serious goals that you want to meet, tighten your own shit. You're going to finish. That trip is going to be gnarly. It's going to be hard. After you come home and you're even more on track than when you left, saying that you're going to thank yourself is a huge understatement. You're going to be just violently sort of – there's going to be this upheaval of motivation where you're going to be like, I'm a fucking war machine. I can die through anything. And now that I'm back home and on my usual foods and usual schedule, but this shit is a fucking joke, man. Yeah. Like if you can live on beef jerky and protein bars on the road, you can do anything with a fucking at-home diet of whole foods and schedules and better sleep, so on and so forth. So I see people when they travel, they're like, I'm traveling, so I'm making a little bit of room. Okay, you're going to travel. You're going to gain some bloat from water on the plane, blah, blah, blah. You're going to come back and then you're it's going to be a shock to get back into your normal diet, back into restriction but when you come home and the normal diet is less restrictive than you're used to, fuck, man, it's like an ideal scenario. So I'd say take it to the teeth. Um, you have the opportunity uh, to, to when, when things hit you hard and, and you really have these serious goals, I think it's time to bear down and do what the fuck you need to do versus taking it easy during that time and then recalibrating. But uh, it's just something that worked for me. No, I love that approach. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like the actual, the kind of the longer leash very much like when you are taking the diet break within a diet it's not like an actual break like you don't actually get a break you just have a longer leash in that period of time i honestly think that's like a i don't want to say it's a misnomer but it's definitely it's a term that all terms will leave something to be desired yeah. and we, we can't be sort of pedagogically sort of pedantic and be like well technically it's not a diet break like <laughs> But even, even that being said, of all the terms that leave something to be desired, I think that one leaves a lot to be desired because a diet break, if you just – just basic, just phonetic understanding is like, okay, so there's no Go more on. diet. It's like, <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> like you, you, you could say like you know, uh, there, was, there was a break in the war when the parties were negotiating. You'd be like, that means there was no fighting? Yeah. You'd be like, no, no, there was just less fighting. You're like, less fighting is not a break. You'd be like what's a relative break like? That's not a thing. So it's definitely a when people find out what diet breaks really are, they're like, So I normally get two fifty grams of carbs, you're saying I just get three fifty. Like, uh-huh. Same whole foods as usual. Uh-huh. Well fuck, really? Yeah. I can't go have pizza? Like, nope. They would take a look at your plan. 
we've put all the best data scientists in the world on it and pizza just doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> like, God damn it. So that's all for after the diet once you've recalibrated everything. We're going to coin the term deficit break now, Mike. Deficit breaks a great idea, yeah. <laughs> or just like eating at maintenance. Yeah. You know, that's, so um actually before we get into them we might be able to cover one question we sure, might sure. just get to that one question but i wanted to ask i don't know if you've already clarified it but in terms of what you're covering when you're coming to london just to give a little bit of a teaser do you have that oh oh steve oh i have it not only do i have it i have just finished writing a book chapter about it scientific principles of hypertrophy training book which won't be out until next calendar year, um, but it will be finished in its main writing in a couple months at the longest. Um, I just wrote that section of that chapter that I'm going to be presenting about in London. So the London folks get a lecture that no one will get again for months at, at best, and potentially no one will ever see until the book is released. So if you want details of the advanced shit behind the scenes, but this is literally like nine months ahead of time. The specific thing I'm going to be talking about is under the subcategory of the SRA training principle. It is in the um, uh, chapter titled SRA in our book. And SRA is stimulus recovery adaptation. SRA is the principle that underlies the need for a training frequency. And thus pretty much the entire chapter talks about training frequency and per per session volumes and things like that. What I'm going to be addressing in London seminar, I believe I have two talks, correct me if I'm wrong, I think. Anyway, I made two talks and sent them to you guys, so hopefully it's two. Um, the one talk is what are the theoretical, and many of these are research-backed and not just theoretical. All of them are research-backed at their core, but some of them have direct studies on them. What are the theoretical problems with potentially too low of a frequency? Like if someone said, I want to train every muscle group once a week, there's probably about five to seven things you could say to them up front that would just be, okay, how would you address these concerns? For example, if you wanted to smash so much volume in one session that it would last you that long of growth, what you'd end up doing is getting up to filling the amount of volume your body can actually create a stimulus from or derive a stimulus from. And most of the volume would end up being above that into the just excess damage component. And then you're really just, it's almost like getting in front of a truck and then being in the hospital for two months and being like hypertrophy. I train once every two months. Be like, that's really intense training. Be like, yeah, but it works. Like, but it just doesn't work like that. You spend two months in the hospital, you come out more jacked. The adaptive processes are superseded. And as a matter of fact, canceled out by the recuperative processes at that point. So if someone says, you know, I only train chest once a week or plan on it, the first thing you could say to them is like, yeah, but to get enough volume so that you get your volume landmarks right per week, wouldn't you have to train the chest so hard in one session that a lot of it would just be damage and not growth? Shit like that, right? So that's one of the lectures. The Some of those things have been discussed online by some people to some extent for now. The other lectures, to me, per, at a personal level, very interesting because a lot of these ideas are very – none of them are very novel, but I, I have a tendency to come up with a few novel ideas, but to synthesize a lot of old ideas into novel understandings. The synthesis here is what about the theoretical problems with a frequency that is too high? 
So what if I said I wanted to do two sets of legs, of quads, every day for six days a week, take one day of rest and repeat? Like, let's say my my MAV was was 12 sets a week. So it maths out. What are the downsides to that? And there are five to seven legit downsides where you start to think about it and you're like, hmm, man, that, that fuck, like that really is a downside. A quick example, maybe a couple of examples. I'm not going to give too many away because it's a lot of the talk. Quick example is uh, when you do a working set, your first working set no matter how long the warm-up is, is never going to be your best set from the perspective of a mind-muscle connection. It just won't. Mind-muscle connection improves steadily set to set to set for at least three to five sets in the same session with the same exercise. I don't know about you, Steve, but the first barbell curl set I do, first working set, has the most reps in it for sure of all the other sets, but it's like, I don't know, I'm curling, but what are my biceps doing? The next set, I'm like, oh, the biceps, yes. Yep. The third set, I'm like, oh, my God. Like there's a little version of me living inside my <laughs> biceps, right? And then so on and so on with the fourth and fifth set. Now, fifth set, sixth set, seventh set, eighth, there's probably a, a plateauing and then a decline when you, once you fatigue and for sure get to that in the seminar. But if it's one of those things where we can say pretty confidently that for most types of workouts – the the, the um, mind muscle quality is better in the sets three and four at the very least than in sets one and two. If we really serious about training just two sets of quads or two sets of whatever every day for six days, we are legitimately picking the least mind muscle connecting type of program on purpose. That's a bad deal. Maybe if we trade three or four days a week and had three or four sets per session we would get those benefits and not have to jack the frequency up any further than that. So hopefully that makes sense. Another one, a really easy one, low-hanging fruit, it's been shown pretty convincingly that the pump, uh, cell swelling, is actually hypertrophic itself. Do you get a pump from one or two sets? Yeah. Do you get your best pump from one or two sets? Fuck no, right? So if you do one or two sets per session versus – three to four plus sets per session per body part, you are not only robbing yourself of the best mind-muscle connection sets, and there's a bunch of other theoretical stuff that draws out from that, you're robbing yourself of the best pumps. And there is very good reason to believe that on both grounds, as shown by data, training that does not cause a pump does not cause as much growth. Training that is of low mind-muscle connection, in many cases, uh, does not cause as much growth. So if you're like, oh, I want to squat every day or I want to do this or I want to do this every day, somebody could bring these and there's five or six other concerns to you and say, but what do you think about this? And you could go, you know what? That's a good fucking point. And then instead of doing a six-day-a-week frequency, you might dial your frequency down to, oh, you know, three or four days a week for the same muscle group or even two to three depending on the muscle group. And all of a sudden, your training is of just a higher quality on a theoretical basis and nets you more results. So that's the kind of stuff we'll be talking about at the London Seminar, but in fucking, as usual for me, step by the most boring PowerPoint slides in the world, <laughs> but they're all numbered and every single thing is covered and every question is answered. So that's what we have to look forward to. Uh, I hate – I'll never say it's unique content never seen before – 
I hate that bullshit promo crap. This is legitimately the case. I've never spoken about this short of now as a preview. So when I get into this on, on stage in London, it's going to be one of those things where, you know, some people like they'll come to talk, talk I'll do about periodizing muscle stuff. They'll just be nodding a lot. Like, Oh, it's great to hear him talk in person. He's really funny. Yeah, yeah. You know, the outline of his pants clearly shows his dicks a lot smaller <laughs> than I thought it would be shit like that. Right. Um, he's ugly in person. There's clearly Photoshop in life. But, but, you know, you say like, did you learn anything new? And they'll be like, you know, yeah, like, like I, I still couldn't have my shit confirmed for me. And like a couple of details were new, but not really. But then they'll say stuff like, you know, people are very nice and they'll say, but, but it was really just a great experience. I highly recommend it. This seminar won't be like that. This seminar will be 75% to 80% of the time. It'll be shit. People just, most people have never considered at that level of depth. And they'll be like, whoa, what? Fuck. And there'll be a lot of like, after the seminar, I can promise you this. Most people will be more confused after than they were before because their brains will still be wrapping yeah. around the shit. But the good news is, is as you think about the shit that I said in the seminar over several days, you're like, oh my God, that's, that's got some fucking weight to it. That makes some fucking sense. So that's what we can promise at the seminar. So, that um, is what I love about your presentations, Mike, is that you take the principles that you've already introduced, but you almost apply them to kind of more detail and you get deeper with them and apply them to some things that maybe people haven't thought of before and therefore it it makes inherent sense when you're hearing it but you're just like why didn't i think of that <laughs> for sure so why didn't i think of that as my entire career in sports science <laughs> <laughs> uh so but it, it's one of those things where um I, I, this is funny to you know i might as well admit it to you uh because you've been you know you and i've been buddies for a long time i have been having a sort of uh um, a crisis recently on how to deal with social media. Um, I'm getting more and more of a following on Instagram, uh, and I'm getting questions that are some combination of so bafflingly rudimentary. And I, I can't rank of a rag on people. Like, they're legit. They legit want to know, like, what are your macros? And I'm just like, who gives a shit what my yeah. macros are? But uh, and, and the, the other part is like questions that are um, asking for a specific but are best answered as a principle. Right. And since I don't have the bandwidth to, to do principles discussions on Instagram, or, or I, I'm having a crisis of like, do I like their comment but not answer the question? Do I answer the question really quick and people think I'm an asshole? Because you're like, uh, they're like, hey, what do I blah, 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 this huge long question. And I'm like, three. The answer is three. And they're like, well, can you explain that? And I'm like, no, yeah, it's fucking Instagram. I have a real job. I have to work for RP and make digital products. I can't just answer Instagram questions in full depth. Plus, you know the drill, Steve. You get the same questions over and over yeah. and over. Which, by the way, uh, this is something I should do this year. But I'm going to have a frequently asked questions thing on RP where it's just going to be an cool. RP website that has FAQ with Mike. And it'll just be like, link to that, link to that, link to that. Because it's probably going to be, here's my macros. Here's my jujitsu training split. <laughs> here's my fucking, here's my favorite foods. Here's the bread that I use, the diet bread. Yeah, brilliant. The <laughs> I, can only, I can only reply with the brand so many times. But one cool thing is that because I've written these books and done these podcasts with you and, and other ways we spread media that is more permanent than Instagram, um, I have a, a large following of following is such a stupid term, a, a large sort of mutual friendship with a bunch of individuals through RP plus through the revive stronger crew that these guys will go on there for me on Instagram, thank fucking God and answer questions and be like, actually might cover this in depth in scientific principles of strength training. Here's my brief take on it, but you can read the book for yourself. That is the kind of shit that I think is really awesome. 
thank God for it. And it might be the only thing to prevent this crisis of mine from making <laughs> me quit Instagram or whatever. Cause you know, like I, 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 the only reason I'm in this field is to give high quality in-depth information. I am not concerned with little bullshit, the throw out numbers kind yeah. of crap. I, I not a fucking, I hate the idea of a guru, like, Oh, here's an answer for everything. A bunch of the stuff is like a bunch of my answers. 90% of them was like, well, I'd have to look at your very specific situation and analyze based on a case by case basis. And then people are like, do you take coaching clients? I'm like, no, like you don't coach. I'm like, no, I write computer programs. And they're like, okay, that sucks. And I'm like, I know, but I wrote all these books and I have all these videos. Check these videos. Like one, of the, one of the quintessential examples is like, I'll post about like, oh yeah, I did my training time for jujitsu. People be like, how do you incorporate jujitsu in weights? I've been struggling. I have a one hour, 15 minute video on YouTube that I literally just link I'm like, boom. And almost every time they come back and they're like, that was fucking amazing. Yeah. And I was like, so I was never supposed to answer your question of how, because they'll say like, I train three days a week with jujitsu, but I have three days a week of weights. What do you suggest? It would have been stupid for me to give them a recommendation because I don't even know enough intricacies, yeah. but I gave them the principles outlined in that video. And all of a sudden Shazam, it's useful knowledge. So like, I, I don't want to be an old man about this. And I, I just don't think this there's by any means clear that this is the case. Well, people say like, oh, the social media kids nowadays want instant answers. First of all, it's by no means clear that that's true. Second of all, it's pretty clear everyone always in the course of history always wanted instant answers, probably more back then than now. Um, but it's it's really good to be able to offer – like I feel like my Instagram is a cheap fucking ripoff where I'm like, hey, do you want to know more? And they're like, yeah, like here's my links in the bio for actual shit that teaches you stuff. I just I, – one of the reasons I don't – sometimes I have like I'm sitting on the toilet, right? I have dick else to do. I already looked look through all my stuff. I did all my work for the day. I'm taking a shit before I watch some TV. And I'm like, I could answer these questions. Like I have five minutes yeah. to answer two or three questions. But I'm like going to be doing people a disservice giving these little bullshit answers. And what I could do much better is be like, hey, check out these resources. It sounds like a money-making Ponzi scheme cop-out where I'm like, oh, really want to know? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, here's pay, pay money to find out. But a lot of the shit is online for especially the YouTube videos and the interviews even I do. That shit is completely for free. Um, and, and there's a big difference between someone who asked me a question, having seen a bunch of revived stronger content, for example, and not those questions I can answer quickly with one number because they have the universal context for it. So they asked me, blah, blah, blah. What about this, that, that? And I'm like four, four times a week is your answer. And they're like, beautiful. Thanks. I knew yeah. it was between three and four, four is great. And everyone else reading that is like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> it's like, you've got to watch a lot of Rise Stronger episodes <laughs> yeah. to figure that one out. So, so there's my little crisis. And hopefully like, I don't know, it's it just, I wish I was like an AI robot that could spit my own textbook answers into every, but Instagram just doesn't interface like that. Yeah. It's a horrible platform for writing any sort of amount of text. I can't even it's write my website. <laughs> I, I write my captions on my laptop and then paste yes. them in. Like I yes. can't, I can't do it any other way. How how in depth are your answers on Instagram to questions, Steve? Because you get way more than I do, probably. So I think the thing that I've got that's quite good is because I think I might get a lot of the people with the better questions and who know more because they end up coming through you whereas you have probably a larger reach and you're hitting more gen pop than actually I am so I'm getting a little bit more niche in that questions I can actually answer but I do get people answer it asking questions that are just like so you could normally they come through dms and I have to yeah. take the time to leave them a voice note sometimes if I've got the time but sure. you're like I don't want you to be put off putting up social media posts. So hearing that you've said, oh, if people can come on and answer them for me and they're good answers, like do that. I think 
that's called cool. the, like the listeners. I like those answers. Yeah, the or listeners. I reply and I say, boom, this guy, talk to this we guy. We can have our, our listeners help you out now. <laughs> oh my God, please, for the love of God, guys, please go on my Instagram and answer questions for fuck's sake. <laughs> like, it's so funny because some people like you answer questions on Instagram and they're like, um, the guy asked me. I'll <laughs> never do that. I promise you, ever. I don't give a fuck. Please help. Because we have so many people that know what they're doing out there. That you know, I, you and I, Steve, are focused on some other work. We can't just do the Instagram question and answer stuff all the time. But I want to help these people. Just you know, like on my bad sports supplement days moments, I'm like, fuck all these people. Everyone's <laughs> fucking stupid. I'm like channeling Lyle McDonald. But then, like on on my better days and better moments and better seconds, I'm like, these are just good fucking people. Probably better people than me. Just want to know shit, man. What's the harm in asking a question? Yeah. Can you imagine asking like? like a pro bodybuilder, like, Hey, what is your diet? Like, and they're like, fuck you. You haven't earned the right to ask me that. You're like, well, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, but you know, after the thousandth time, someone asked you a question about your diet, where you, um, wrote a book about dieting. That's 250 pages long, designed diet templates and like basically designed a diet app that, that tells you what to eat. It's kind of like, Hey, what's your diet? Like, it's like, fucking kill me like it's not even the right question to ask because you don't care what my diet's like you want your diet to improve and you want lessons from my diet so that your diet improves well guess what you don't even have to learn my diet i got lessons for you right here and there's videos if you don't want to read the books so it's one of those things where i just have to i think we all have to keep our frustrations on the sort of let the better angels of our nature kind of play in and and, and just offer helpful solutions or right now steve i don't know if this is the wrong thing no solutions at all. So what I'm doing is like, if I can't give you a good answer, I just don't answer your question. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe other people will, but I'm not, I don't want to do the thing where I'm like a dick and answer super short questions, knowing people don't have context for it. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it should be giving some kind of answers, but I feel like that's more of a waste because then they, then they think that's what they got out of, out of Mike Isertel. They're like, yeah. Oh, like Mike Isertel, that's what he said to me. So that's his best. Like yeah. my best is a goddamn doctoral dissertation. Like, I, I could easily write one for you on every question for God's sake. I just I can't do that. So you get to get nothing or you get something I think is valuable or you're getting a, a reference to like, links. I don't know. This is something that might be of value. Um, Andy Morgan, um, who you met at the mm-hmm. sem- like at the last seminar, I don't think he'd be able to come to this one, but he, what cunt? <laughs> he takes a dislike. Well, he doesn't take a dislike. He has a way of kind of when questions come in, he has like mm-hmm. a contact me page on his website that says like, read my articles, look at these books, like search through it. Right. If you don't get your answer, then I can't remember what the end is, but it's basically you'll find get your fucked. answer. <laughs> yeah, basically get right. fucked. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really good. And the, the, the thing is like, it seems like a bit of a cop out. It seems like a high horsing where you're like, I'm so famous and Instagram important that I can't answer your questions. The contrary though is it's first of all true. Like when you have a lot of shit going on and you have a full time job, like like this guy, like like maybe let's say that um, somebody asked me a question about training and their their job is a welder, like they weld ships for a living. I could be like, hey, tell me some stuff about ship welding. And they'd be like, Oh my god, Dr. Mike, who fucking wants to know about ship welding? Blah 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 blah. I'd be like, great can I intern under you? Like, can I learn ship welding? They'd be like, well, yeah, but there's like this program apprenticeship and you have to pay money at first, but then you get paid. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I, you know, come on money. Like I'm me. Can you just give me some answers? And I'd be like, well, no, Jesus Christ, this is my job. Like yeah. matter of fact, I got to work now. Like I, I can't talk to you anymore. The thing is like, this shit is our job, right? So I can't answer questions forever. It's not that they're for free or not. I, I don't have money problems. It's just that yeah. there's only so many hours in the day 
And if you really want to know, you're going to want better answers than through Instagram. And I think that's what it really comes down to. I think Instagram is a great place to have community, to have motivation, to have inspiration, and to find those breadcrumbs to those resources that really expand your mind, like books, like long-form interviews, like all this other stuff. And then, um, you know, one of the things that really like just makes me super proud of some of the things I've done is when people say, specifically people say this, people say this about the art renaissance diet all the time, but um, scientific principles of strength training. People message me and that book is straight garbage. It was barely edited. Like there's all kinds of mistakes in it, right? It's old as fuck. But people say like, I read that book. I used to be confused about training. The shit matrix, my fucking mind open. They're like, I'm not paranoid about programming anymore. I know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I'm like, oh my God, thank fucking God that you read that book. So like, you know, am I a good resource to ask Instagram questions of? Nope. You're 50 times better. Jared Feathers is better. Uh, Omar Souf, Jeff Nippard, 50,000 other YouTubers are way better asking personal questions through social media because you're getting a dog shit response from me. But as far as like work, like book length works, article length works, video in-depth interviews, I think I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> so I think if people could, you know, be, uh, you know, uh, if they really want to get the most value they can out of me, look for the shit where I get to talk for a little longer. RP plus, sorry to plug it. RP plus is a really cool thing where it's Renaissance periodization and, for 10 bucks a month, James, Dr. James Hoffman and I, who's a sport performance and recovery expert, we answer your questions every week. You can ask as many questions as you want. You write them into the form. We answer them for $10 a month, a long form. Each, each post takes an hour and a half or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like 10 questions. It usually takes us an hour and a half to answer that many. So, uh, and then, of course, through this forum, like, you know, send in your questions to Steve and he'll post them here. That's where you get, I think, the most valid shit for me. Whereas like, if you send me a Facebook message, you're like, Hey, I've heard about this. What do you think about this? I'm like, it sucks. And they're like, why? I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a whole book chapter on Too why. <laughs> <laughs> no, I absolutely appreciate that because I've the most frustrating thing. And you've probably had it, Mike, where it will be the same person asking very similar questions where you're just like, just get the textbook. It's like a number of dollars that you could probably like not get a multiple number of coffees and you just have all the answers you'd ever need and more. 100%. 100%. Uh, that's why we wrote the mini cut manual. And yeah. that's why I have received very few mini cut questions since after legitimately, like we've gotten very few mini cut questions because we just said like to enough people read the manual. And once they did, they were like, Oh, huh. All right. And now it's funny cause you build a community around the stuff, right? When people ask mini cut questions, somebody else on Instagram will jump down the throat and be like, read the mini cut manual, you fucking <laughs> asshole. There's a reason they wrote the book. And I'm like, oh my God, stay calm. But it's right. Oh, brilliant. Awesome. Gosh. Well, Mike, I know we've been over an hour now, so we've gone I over a lot. got time for one question. One question. One question. Cool. Let's so this it. actually relates working. to what we've been talking about already. It's from Bryant Grant, who, thank you very much, is a Patreon supporter. So he has asked, when coming out of a contest prep, do you recommend incorporating metabolite techniques to increase volume uh, on a depleted body or sticking to traditional hypo- hypertrophic rep ranges to reach your previous rep set maxes quicker? Thank you. Love your work. Awesome question. I would recommend metabolite training coming out of a contest prep for four to six weeks and then taking a low volume maintenance phase to resensitize. There's a couple of reasons why. One, the pumps you get from just the carbs post show are going to be so insane, you might as well be doing metabolite training to magnify the effect. Just remember, pumps grow muscle. If you get crazy pumps, but you're doing sets of eight, you're gonna get really good pumps, but like, why not go for broke? If you're doing sets of 20 to 30 reps, drop sets, et cetera, you're gonna have mind-numbing pumps. 
that will actually fuel more hypertrophy than at many other times. It's a people ask the same question. If I'm at maintenance, should I do metabolite phase? It's like, not really, because it's kind of wasting it, right? A metabolite phase is really good on cutting towards the end of cutting because of the reduced injury risk from the lower weights that you have to lift. It is at the same time really good for coming out of a show because after a show, you're pretty fucked up, right? And going back into heavy training has two downsides. One, you had some strength loss, mostly because of fatigue. And so it's going to take you a while to even benefit from that conventional training as much as you would. But you're going to benefit from metabolite training right the fuck away. The second problem is actually a very interesting problem. This is something Broderick Chavez and I have talked about before. When you have really big fluid compartment shifts, like post-show, you're bloated and like some of it is in the wrong way, some is in the right ways. When you get pumps in your muscles, they get so pumped that it changes your leverages on some lifts. And grinding max weights through weird leverages you're not used to is a technique destabilizer and can get you hurt. For example, if you do leg presses and then squats and you do both heavy in a post-contest pump situation, basically assessing two weeks before the contest versus now, two weeks after, the way your squats feel at the bottom in the hole after leg presses, you're just going to be like three extra kilos of water in your quads. It's going to shift the fulcrum a ton and it's going to make your quads feel like they're popping off the bone at the bottom which is great for metabolite stuff because the pump is gnarly as fuck. But that shift means the rest of your body has to shift. You've got more food in your belly now, so your belt hits differently. The lift feels different and looks different enough to throw you off of your technique enough to really hurt you. Here's another problem. You've you got tons of energy after the show because you're lean, you're in great shape, and you're eating carbs for the first time. That can make for some poor decisions with weight selection and be like, let's fucking hit these PRs. You're fatigued, you're frayed, you're beat up. Your connective tissues have been hypocaloric because everything has for months. They're probably not at their best. Can you train with high reps and drop sets? Yeah, totally. It's like you're not going to tear your tendons off the bone doing drop sets. But you could doing sets of eight. So your chance of injury increases for that reason as well. Um, and because you might just make dumb decisions and go too heavy and then get yourself hurt. So for all of those reasons, I think conventional training after a show, not the best way to go. And that for a couple of weeks at least after a show, enjoy the carbs, enjoy the crazy pumps and the super awesome Instagram pictures, drive for those pumps, do the metabolite training. At the end of it, you'll be like, nah, I'm tired of metabolite training. kind of want to train heavy. Perfect. It's time for your maintenance phase to really cool the waters, reduce the fatigue. And then the next mass phase, as we talked about in the last Arrive Stronger seminar when I set up the yearly periodization – is the usual kind of normal progression, heavier loads, so on and so forth. Fantastic. Yeah, that period of like four to six weeks is a really nice period of time to then also recover body fat levels, feel more normalized and everything. So it works really well in like a phase potentiated sequential totally. periodized program. So it's totally, great. <laughs> totally, totally. And also like a lot of times that's when you do your travel, right? Um, you show up to a hotel gym in Ibiza and you're not going to have a fucking like EO rack. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to be able to do your IPF prep for worlds or some shit. You're going to have a fucking janky leg press and a couple of 20 kilo dumbbells. And you're going to do leg press to lunch superset until your quads fall off your body. And then you're going to go to the all you can eat buffet at the hotel and stuff yourself full of pancakes and fruit. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's the real fun in life and being a physique <laughs> athlete. 
don't rob yourself of that by worrying about did I bring my weightlifting shoes and belt with me on the trip? You know what I mean? So if, not even for all those theoretical reasons, but just for the practical reasons of like, God, are we really doing this? Like super serious during these fun times? Like it's it's tough. It's tough. And, and it's something you want to build momentum for and do in your normal massing, not in the post-show uh, recovery period. Cool. Perfect. I'm glad we got one question. I really appreciate that, Mike. And I'm, I'm sure Brian does as well. So again, I want to remind people, if you want to see the seminar, the kind of exclusive new content that was not going to be out for a while with Mike, Gabrielle, James, then there's still tickets available. They'll be linked in the bio or linked in the description. So really appreciate you guys. And thank you again, Mike, for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.